Welcome back to On The Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is RJ Papura. He's one of the best comedians in Rochester. He got a start in college in Oswego and got comfortable on TV before jumping onto the stage for good. Uh, unfortunately, he's a big Braves fan, so we spent way too long talking about baseball, but we did get some comedy in there. Uh, I work with him all over the state and can honestly tell you he's one of the best comedians around. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for the Patreon. It's just five bucks a month. You can also follow Homebrewed Comedy on Facebook or go to homebrewedcomedy.com to see all the show dates. See RJ Prepara there. Thanks again. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Thanks, man. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. I think one of my favorite parts of this podcast is uh, uh, we'll bullshit for 22 minutes and then I'll say, hey, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you also thanked me in the beginning, so you're just being extra appreciative, and I can appreciate that. <laughs> well, what? So you're uh, you just got off of work. What are you What are you doing during the day? I do uh, dialysis billing for a healthcare company. You know, this was this is a, a podcast about comedy, but I say we fuck that and we just talk about yeah. your job. Oh no, let's not do that. <laughs> I'll get fired if they hear my my thoughts. <laughs> oh my god, I I can't imagine that. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what you do. Is it just accountant work? So, no, it's not that. I basically work on patient accounts and then uh, like I try to resolve claims with insurance companies. But the thing is, like half the time I'm dealing with ladies that died in 2017 and like Excellus doesn't want to pay the claim from the year she died or like a month before she kicked it. So I got to call Excellus and be like, hey, can you just pay this so I don't have to pass this on to the family four years later? And I just... Healthcare should be free, man. That's my only stance. <laughs> I don't know logistically how to make it happen, but that's just from working in this job. That's my stance. So you're fighting the good fight. Well, uh, as much as I can, you know, I, I try and write stuff off as much as possible. I don't know if that's considered fraud. I'm just doing as much as I know how to do. So <laughs> I would think if I worked at a bank or something like that and I had access to just refund all the withdrawal fees, that's what I would do all day, every day. The only problem with that is like when I try to, when I had to post a refund, my supervisors see that and they have to approve it. So then they're like, okay, so why are we posting a refund? Or like if I, if I post an adjustment on an account over $500, they also have to approve that. So like, I can't just go out and cancel a $5,000 claim from 2017 on a dead lady. You know, it's like, they'll notice and they'll be like, why haven't you called about this dead lady? Well, because she's fucking dead and I shouldn't have to waste my time doing it. <laughs> That's, I don't know. Is that, is that logical? Does that make sense? Yeah. She's not going to, she's not going to pay. And also like, isn't that, um, I think one of my goals was, and maybe, maybe I'm just going to fuck my family because of this, but that's also one of my goals. <clears throat> but uh, if like you were on your deathbed, don't you like want to like ring up everything on, on your credit cards and like, fuck everybody. I'm just going to get what I want. And yeah, if, you got everywhere. No next, if you got no next to kin, what's their credit card company really going to be able to do? Right. They're going to have to eat the cost. So fuck them. Well, Zach Hammond, we just worked with him. He's got a bit where like, he basically said, you can use, you can charge anything you want. You can max out your credit cards and then just wait. And they will eventually just, you know, uh, reduce your debt until it's something. So they'll settle it for you. 
So he's like, yeah, like, you know, so I'll buy, you know, $5,000 worth of things for $25. You know, it'll hit my credit score and I can't get a house, but it's a fun game. That seems ballsy. Yeah. I mean, has he actually gone through with that successfully before? Because I don't know that I'd want to roll the dice with that. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't like, uh, audited not his account. Not, but like, I'm scared for the man if he's actually living his life that way. <laughs> I just talked to him and he's got a girlfriend who's got a good job. So I think he's okay. Okay, so he's not the breadwinner. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, no. no you've seen his act. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the, the fact that he, like, tours as a headliner is, like, awesome. Yeah. Like, I don't know how many people that get to do that. No, he's, he's got... He's always got new shit. The two times I've worked with him, like, I noticed that he has new shit, so... Yeah, he's uh, he's got four albums out. And Paul Kozlowski's got a joke. He's like, uh, anytime you see Zach at an event or on, a, on an event page... It's like, oh, is it, what is he working on? His 18th album? <laughs> like, always turning out material. It's it's really impressive to watch. I'm jealous of it. Like, I can't say that I'll... I mean, I would like to have an album one day, even just one. But to, for the fact that he's turned out four hours of material, and he's not that much older than me. He's, like, mid-30s, right? 34. Yeah, he's five years older than me. So, like, he's way ahead of me in terms of the stand-up game, in my opinion. Well, you're much funnier, if that means anything. I don't know about that, but I appreciate <laughs> <laughs> when did you start doing comedy? Um, my first set was 10 years ago. It was uh my dad's birthday in 2011, June 23rd. I skipped his birthday dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I told him I was just going to watch because I didn't want them to come because I'm an only yeah. child and they definitely would have come. And I didn't want them to see my first time. But yeah, I did it. And then Mark, the owner of the or not the owner, the manager of the Carlson. Yeah. Told me it was the best first time he'd ever seen. No which, kidding. Like, yes, but at, like after you do stand up for a little while, you realize how little that compliment means because it was still a first time. You know, like I was still I don't know. I did a bit about like comparing dating to like taking off and landing a plane, talking to air traffic control, and that was the whole bit. Like I wasn't doing like quick shit like I do now. I was trying to like do a whole thing, so it was just weird. Was it like a, a three minute bit, five minute bit? It was, yeah, I think it was like a three, four minute bit thereabouts. And it did, like, it, for a first time, it did pretty well. I may have been cushioned by the fact that the host brought me up saying it was my first time, but still, like, you get the bump. And Mark's always been good to me. So I can't ever, you know, fault him for that. I think the first time I went on stage, I know, I know where I was. I, I had just come back from my grandpa's funeral. And I actually think I was wearing a shirt and tie. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't, I must have meant to do that because like I was home in time to change, but I'm almost almost positive. And I know the first shows I did, I always, and they were very, very sporadic. I wore a tie because like, I, I just felt like I needed, I don't know, like to stand out a little bit. And I probably should have written better jokes to do that, but I was like, well, I can't do that. So I'll just wear a tie. Well, when you first start, you don't really know how. No, even now, sometimes I don't know how. So like, (laughs) I understand, like, I understand trying to stand out with something, but I've just always been of the mind, like, unless I'm at a formal event, like dick jokes and a suit and tie are sort of like combating ideals. You know what I mean? Like, it would kind of defeat the purpose of me getting dressed up if I'm going to go out there and just talk about dead kids and come, you know, (laughs) why do I need to wear a suit jacket for that? I can just wear a T-shirt and have the same, probably a more down-to-earth effect on these people because i'm not trying to be classy i started wearing a hoodie on stage man it was probably 
I don't know, like for shows, I, I just started dressing down. I, I don't know exactly why I did it, but I, I put a hoodie on. I'm like, oh my God, I it's like what I wear outdoors. I mean, it's it's just my regular getup. So I felt like it was more natural. Like like when I was wearing a, a shirt and tie, I was like a little bit a little bit more robotic and I'm like yeah. professional and had to stick up my ass. I'm like, no, if I wear like a punk rock t-shirt and a and a hoodie, who gives a fuck? Like if I if I think you need to the best thing about stand-up is that you can be the best version of yourself. So like if you're dressing just like yourself, you're not trying to impress anybody with your appearance. You're just it's just another extension of you being yourself, you know? It's yeah. just like how you look. So, so when like, did, I'm totally on board with wearing hoodies and shit, you know? When did you tell your dad, hey, this is why I skipped your dinner? Oh, fuck. Uh, my aunt got a call from her friend who happened to be in the audience at the at my first fucking show and was like, your last name is Papura. I just saw Papura on stage here. And then my aunt called my dad and was like, I think RJ just did stand up. So then when I got home that night, I had to tell him that I did it. <laughs> that quickly? Oh, yeah. There's no was, honeymoon. Dude, there's Papuras everywhere. You would not believe it. I've never heard the name before I met you. Well, yeah, I guess it's more of a, a Rochester thing, but like right. we're all over the place. We were related to Al Capone. No kidding. Yeah, my aunt, my great aunt Teresa married him. So um, they married in Sicily and then they moved to Watertown. And then my great grandpa bought like a whole street in Watertown that was just the Papura Capone family. Um, and they ran like a fruit farm out of there for years. And yeah, well, she didn't marry Al. Sorry, she married Al's cousin. But yes. So are you 100% Italian? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, Sicilian, but yeah, Italian. I wonder if at that point, if you're marrying that deep into the Capone family, if like you have to marry an Italian. Oh, for sure. Well, it's I'm guessing it's like a certain point of like the Jewish families. Like you only meet Jewish ladies that look for Jewish dudes just because yeah. that's what their mom told them to do. You know, that's based on like the five I knew in college. I'm not <laughs> I'm just I'm not generalized. I'm just my experience. But yeah, I guess I, I just a culture thing. You're just used to you kind of just want your people to stay with your own people. And that's a super old school, probably an immigrant thing. Right. But like, it makes sense. You want to stick with your own. Well, who else is going to understand the Sunday dinner, you know, at one yeah. o'clock? Yeah. Or the seven fishes. Yeah. Well, and other other than people who watch Sopranos, like no one will get that shit. You know, like right. they're not going to they don't understand the concept of uh, a whole Italian family. So, well, Endicott, you've been here at least a couple times. And, yeah, I've been here for there for the shows you guys booked me on or you and, booked me. Yeah, it's an Italian town. So my grandpa is Joe Ruspentini and he married a Cyril's. So he married an English woman. And that I think, you know, his parents are off the boat. So they're they're both Italian uh, or they were. And yeah, I, I don't know if anybody else married Italians, but what did your name water down to Peter's then? Oh, that's my mom. That's my mom's oh, dad. Okay, so so it's a, a shameful secret. But my dad's parents, they're they're both named Peter's. So like we're just taking their word that they weren't related at any point. And they're both dead now, so it's got to be that way. Yeah. But I met it both of them. You if they were related. I met both of them, man. <laughs> they could be cousins. They could be first cousins. It, whatever. They're, yeah. The only proof that I have that, that they're not brother and sister is that my grandma, Elsie, is one of 11 kids, and they 
all their names started with E. Wow. Yeah. And I've got it written down somewhere, but like, and I'm, I have this list and I might be the only person in the family with it because she died and like, didn't leave, you know, I mean, some of the three of the kids were, they were like, they died in like a scarlet fever and like, uh, well, yeah, that shit just happened back yeah. then. Yeah. Which is why I think they had 11 kids like, well, 11 aren't going to survive. So let's, I mean, my grandma's like an insurance baby. You cast your net. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, uh, but they're all like Edwin and, uh, you know, Elmer. It's not like an Eric or anything like that. It's all, it's, it's like weird. Ezekiel? Uh, I'm trying to know like old school E names. Yeah. I don't think Ezekiel's on there. Uh, no, no it, it's, it's like, I, there's an Irma. I don't know if I could find it real quickly, but Irma, Irma, that, that seems like an I name that might be, they might've bent the rules a little bit just to keep the E trying it, to go. It's definitely, it's definitely a stretch. I'm trying yeah. to think E names that we haven't, you said Eric. Um, no, it, it's not Eric. It's, it's Edwin, Elmer, well, Elsie, Irma. Let's see here. I got Elsie. it. I, I think about it. Uh, let's see here. How do you keep track of all those kids? I would, my mom, gets confused between me and like three of my cousins sometimes how do you <laughs> fucking e names in the same house here it is so it's elsie eleanor irma esther ethel eva evelyn edwin elmer emory and ernest okay i that's, think that's 11 that's a lot that's yeah. a lot yeah i feel like naming a child esther is just you just expect them to be an old woman immediately <laughs> have you yeah. ever met like an like a young elsie no, like, like these names are just dead. There's no young Normans, you know, <laughs> like that's a, those are old man, old woman names. I wonder like some, like, okay. Like Betty white just died. And yeah. I wonder, like I have a grandma Betty. I wonder if like Betty is going to come back because oh, she just for died sure. for sure. It will like the, all the kids that just had babies and want to do it as like a cool hip tribute. will definitely do it so yeah. they can get like, likes on tiktok and stuff like that that's all that's all kid names are about anymore mm, that's uh maybe i need to go I'm probably wrong about that i'm not on tiktok <laughs> have you tried it at all no nah, dude i got nervous once i heard that the chinese were stealing everybody's data so i was like all right there's enough of my shit out there i don't need them to be, be able to make deep fakes out of my facial expressions you know yeah i if, if anybody wants my data and my my all my banking information take it i don't care at this point yeah, I mean, at, at the same time, now that you say that, like, I don't really have enough money that they could fuck my life up, you know? Right. Like, going back to square one is just, like, not getting paid for a week. So <laughs> could, they could have my banking routing number, I guess. <laughs> the only thing I don't want to do is, like, I don't want I, – I just want to have enough money to where I don't – I don't have to, like, tell my mom, like, hey, I am a failure. Remember? Yes. Remember all your all your suspicions? That's the They're, ultimate. Yeah. They're confirmed. I, the idea of having to ask my parents for money. Yeah. Scared the shit out of me. I had to do it when I was in New York a couple of times. It was so fucking uncomfortable, especially as an only child. It's just, yeah, I need, I need to show them that I'm independent. You know, you moved to New York, what, two years ago, three years ago. Yeah. I went, uh, three at the, uh, yeah. July, 2018. And I was back July, 2019. <laughs> was it just, obviously you didn't mean to go for a year, but like, well, no. I mean, I, did you, uh, I don't know, like, were you just bored in Rochester? Like kind of not, I don't want to make it sound like bored. It's just like, I just wanted to see like every comic I feel like that I love has gone through New York or came up through New York, like all the great ones. So it's just like, I kind of wanted to see how I compared, but ugh, 
that was before I was on like antidepressants and I stopped going to therapy because I couldn't afford it when I was down there. So like I was not in a good headspace at all during my year in New York, uh, to be totally honest. And then like towards the end, it was just like a cavalcade of bullshit. So like my credit card ran or I maxed out my credit card because my bank didn't send me my debit card in time. So then I was just charging everything in New York for about a month. And I thought I was going to lose my temp job. But all this didn't really matter because I would have had to move back during COVID anyways. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> it's, I try not to dwell on it, but it does suck. I was just talking to a guy who is a comedian and he was in L.A. and had to move back to New York during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, I probably was going to move back anyway. So this just gave me the excuse. Like, really? oh, I, didn't, I didn't fail. The pandemic made me move. You know? Yeah. And I don't, I don't even think it's a failure thing. It's like you tried and like it just didn't work. I definitely looked at myself as a failure for a little while when I first got back. But once I started taking the meds and stuff, I got myself into a better space. I talked to my therapist a lot about that, if I'm being honest. So, yeah, it took a little work, but I'm definitely in a better space with looking back on my time in New York than I was like when I first got back because I was really fucking down on myself for a little bit there. What did you learn from New York that I mean that, you know, I assume you had to take something to come back to Rochester. And did you feel better about your time there and feel better as a comedian? Um, I guess I feel better in Rochester when I don't do well, just because like when I would bomb and open mics in Rochester before I went to New York city, I would, I would think like, well, fuck, this is the end. I'll be all like, if, if I can't do well here, then I'm never going to do well. But then I, you go to New York and I didn't do well in a lot of places, but then you see people that are way fucking better than you who've probably just started, you know, who've done less than you who are way better. And it just kind of puts it in perspective. Like you're not the hot shit you thought you were before you moved. So I kind of just try and take everything more in the moment now, instead of comparing myself to everybody. Yeah. I still do that here. And you know, it's like, like, cause obviously the goal is to not just do bar shows and Binghamton or Rochester or whatever you want more, but it's like, that's also not a bad thing. You know, like I, I, I put a lot of pressure, especially early on, on getting better and getting out. And now I'm like, well, I'm having fun. And yeah. you know, it, it's like, like, I, I think for me, it was like the repetition of like, yeah, you have bad sets, you have good sets. Unless you really fuck up royally, you're always going to have another set. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, if I fucked up that one, I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. I guess I like, I didn't have that perspective when I was in New York because like I was only doing open mics. I wasn't just, I wasn't getting booked. So like when the only thing you had to look forward to is like, all right, I ate shit at the eight o'clock Friday mic at the Creek. Let's see how the 10 o'clock mic goes or the midnight mic or whatever yeah. it was. I don't remember the times, but like when you, the only thing you had to look forward to is other open mics, it weighs on you or weighed on me a little bit, I guess. It definitely made my confidence take a dive. Did it change the way you wrote? Because I know like the Creek in the cave, like if you got like, I, I don't know, I talked to uh, some, one of the people who ran it and she was like, yeah, we get like 50 some people here. And so only people are getting like, you know, three and a half minutes. So you have to hit, you know, joke. I mean, obviously your style now would probably work. I mean, did, yeah, that, well, did it, that change it, because of it? I think I was trying to get to that style before I went to New York. Honestly, like, 2017, I wanted to be David Tell so bad. I was like mimicking his delivery and like his just like bang, bang, bang. And then I realized that like, yeah, that's that's great, but that's not me. Like I can't keep that up for an hour like he can and no one can really. 
So like, I just kind of like, I still have quick jokes, but I don't try and do it as like a fucking bullet train like he does, you know? So I don't think it really changed my style because I was always writing like sort of quick bits going into that. The only thing that really changed is like if my first line didn't hit, I wouldn't have confidence in the rest of it. Right. Whereas if I was doing a mic in Rochester and the first thing didn't hit, I had confidence that like, I know these people and they know me, like I'll get them on my side by the end of this. Yeah. I know. I mean, still every once in a while, like, like I'm, I'm better about it now about like not taking the gamble on the first joke. Mm-hmm. Cause I alter my set very, you know, frequently, but like I, I used to gamble on that. I'm like, okay, let's see if it works in the first one. And then if it didn't work, I'm like, oh fuck, they don't yeah. like me. We're 22 seconds into the set and they don't like me. Yeah. And it's like, they don't like the joke. They don't like me now. And uh, so that's, that's hard for me. Even, even still uh, when I have something that works almost every time and it doesn't work, I'm like, what now? Like, what do I do? I'm <laughs> like, like, that's I, when I, bring the, that's when I just say, all right, the crowd's not into me. Right. Cause if I do that stillborn joke and they don't laugh, then I'm just like, all right, this show is just not going to be the one. Cause like, I know that that is a good bit. And like, headliners tell me that that's a good bit so like i don't i guess i don't really feel comfortable until a headliner tells me it's good but yeah <laughs> I, I <was> good <laughs> well that joke that's baby travis right yeah that's a joke that the comedians in binghamton if you're on a show in the binghamton area the comedians be like hey you got to go to that one and listen to that joke like just think about really? baby travis yeah so it's like you know I, i'm sure other people talk about it but it's definitely a hit with the comedians too like that like warms my heart a little bit, man. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. To you. Like Steve, uh Stephen Brown has definitely talked to me about it before. But yes. uh yeah, shit that uh thank you. Yeah, shit yeah, that no problem. Good. Thank you. <laughs> so when did you feel comfortable on stage? I mean, uh, you, you do your first open mic, it went well. Uh, I assume you got a pretty decent reception, but like when you came back, I mean, when did you start feeling like, oh, oh, I, I can do this, like I, I belong on stage? It wasn't until uh, after my senior year of college and that was 2014. So like the first open mic went great in 2011. The second open mic, I ate shit and I didn't get on stage again for like another year and a half. Oh, wow. It gets to 2014. I'm in college and we have this show with Sarah Benson um, and a couple other people uh, that I knew at the time called weekend and us. So we basically had like 22 minutes every other week where we were doing weekend update style jokes or just sketches or whatever we could come up with to fill 22 minutes. It was like four people writing and producing all this content. It was me, my friend DJ, Sarah Benson, and uh, Liz, Liz Collins. And occasionally we had like other people come in and chip in, but that was like the core four. So like I was like the anchor with Sarah telling like the one-liner jokes. And when I would do that, we didn't really have an audience, but like I would make the cameraman or the camera people, whoever was doing it, like, they would laugh when I got through my joke on the teleprompter. I'm like, okay. And then like people started coming up to us on campus occasionally and being like, Hey, we really like weekend in Oz. So then I started going to like the music open mic was all we had at Oswego. And I would start doing like stand up bits that I was working on there and they started going better and better. So yeah, I think doing that show and just like having to write jokes that are strictly set up punchline structure for 20 minutes or so every other week, like, that really helped my joke writing ability. And once I knew I could do that on camera, like doing stand up felt easier, I guess. It's got to take some of the pressure off. Like you're like, okay, well, I'm going on here, you know, at a bar or in a, a class. That open mic, was that on campus or off? 
Yeah, it was on campus in like okay. the, the coffee shop next to the library. Right. So it was like whoever was like just hanging around the library that night or just waiting to go up would be your audience. So like, yeah, I mean, there's what pressure do you have there? If already, you know, theoretically, the entire campus is seeing your stand up. Yeah, exactly. So it just it felt really low stakes at that point. And especially the fact that like the jokes I was putting on camera were basically other than when we would do run throughs, they were like the first or second time they were being told. So like if they were getting laughs, then fuck it. Um, I must be doing something right. So that definitely like absolutely helped with just like me knowing I know at least how to write a joke. You know, that process is kind of how I felt about Zoom comedy, because the way we were structured, like I, I don't know if it was legal or not, but I was running the open mic at Kelly's for a lot of the time. So and we did it outdoors and then we transitioned to indoor in like November. And mm-hmm. but the entire time I'm doing stand up on Zoom for like one one set. So I would get a run through of all the material. So I would have it memorized because I do it in front of a computer and get some laughs because like, you know, people had the mics on or whatever. Um, Mm. So like I got some response, but when I came back on Monday or Tuesday and, and did the jokes, it felt like this is my second or third time running with these. So whereas everybody else wasn't. So like, I felt like I was cheating a little bit. Like, no, I I know these jokes are going to be good. So I'm playing with like, you know, I would have been nervous to try out new stuff on Zoom. Uh, I'm doing it at an open mic. If you're in a room with people, you know, it's a lot less. Uh, there's a lot less pressure. So like I did a room uh, for with a bu- bunch of buddies in uh, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. So okay. I-, I booked some of them on the shows. I had met some of them beforehand. They were a good audience. They were welcoming. They were very supportive. If I had gone to different rooms and I had where nobody knew me, it was like a, we don't know you at all. We don't give a fuck about you. And then any new material that worked well in another Zoom room would always hit a little, um, it just felt a little bit flat. Just, yes. Yeah. Hit all the flat in that room because like, but I would hear their friends jokes. And I'm like, well, that joke sucked. And my joke might've sucked too, but it definitely should have gotten a, more of a response or at least the same response right. as the one you gave that one. Right. So that it was, it was a little weird. It was kind of like, uh, like if you remember O'Day's in Syracuse. Yeah. 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 It was kind of like that room a little bit. Like when you're out of town, you have to fight a little bit more for the laughs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know? Or and, Tudor in Buffalo. Oh yeah. 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 It, I mean, basically any room essentially, uh, yeah. but like, yeah, it was, so that's how I had to look at it. And I just did the zoom stuff to make sure I kept writing because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't do shit. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I'm, I got very into the pandemic. I'm like, you know yeah. what? I love sitting at home and oh, I do not too, doing man. anything. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, working from home is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Oh, maybe, maybe not the greatest thing, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's top three for sure. Um, I love it. Yeah. I don't ever want to go back to an office. <laughs> when you, uh, you graduated Oswego, did you go right to, right back to Rochester? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so you're like 22, 23. You go on yeah. stage for the first time with these. I mean, obviously they had seen you before a little bit. At least Mark. Did you feel like, oh, I can I can hang with these guys right away just because of everything you did at Oswego? Not right away, because there was this group of uh, there was this group of comics in Rochester still at that time called Goo House. I don't know if you know them. Oh, um, was Charlie Wildy in that? Yes, Charlie, okay. Lucas Gardner, Mikey Heller, Dewey Lovett, just uh, John Shuda, just this group of like insanely insanely talented comics 
and like some would call them alternative yeah. and i guess they would fit that bill but like they still make me laugh and alternative comedy doesn't usually make me laugh like they are legitimately hilarious front to back everyone in that troop uh mikey heller that bagel high is it, is it one of his comic strips yeah it's so good and i like I, an emmy award-winning writer now is he really I think I think he got an Emmy for the Cartoon Network show he writes on. Wow, which is crazy. Well, not crazy because he was always been talented, but it's just someone from here. You know, yeah. he's been writing for them for a while now. I went to school with. Uh, do you remember Son of Zorn? I don't think I do. Oh, it was on Fox for a little while. Uh, I went to school with the, the guy who wrote it, or, or like was behind it, was is Eric Appel, and his name's all over the place now. Uh, okay, I, I don't know what his current credit is or you know he's always working on something but a lot of animated stuff and i went to school with his sister so like oh, that's cool. that's the closest i've got to you know a, a star like oh i used to check out his sister when she wasn't looking like, yeah, yeah you know but i'm right there i was once in the room with steve levy at oswego when he gave a talk and that's my claim to fame so oh, i got greg gumble at mansfield what? that's awesome though. It, was, it was great but you know it was the other gumble but whatever but he was at no. least the sports guy yeah, it's one of the you got a Gumble. I think yeah. that's even in itself. <laughs> it's sad because I think he's more famous for the Family Guy Gumble to Gumble. He might be at this point, <laughs> but he still got the family name recognition, you know. Yeah. Do you ever want to do anything in sports, like uh, like broadcasting, anything like that? Yeah, I I actually went to Oswego originally to be a sports journalist. Oh um, yeah. And I, then I took one journalism class. And I realized that like half of journalism is covering shit that you don't really, or that I don't really care about. So then I was just like, I don't want to do that. So I just started looking at other writing stuff I could do. And I got a film degree and a communications degree. I got a broadcasting and journalism degree. Nice. And so like, like I was a journalist for a long time and you're right uh, when you start, because like a lot of those classes, you're, Maybe Oswego with like Linda Cohn and, and I assume Steve Levy went there too. Yeah, he did. Okay. So like with that, was donated by him and, oh, Al really? Roker. and Al fucking Roker. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they, they have a little more uh, lineage than Manson. Yeah. Did. Like we had people who worked at ESPN, but no on air talent. Oswego was the cheap version of Syracuse. Like Syracuse has an immaculate broadcasting program and Oswego is the SUNY. It's very much the SUNY version of that. It's the affordable version of Syracuse. My best friend went to Oswego and that's, that's really all I know of it. But yeah, cause Seinfeld was what there for what a semester or something like that. Yes. Like two weeks or some shit. Yeah. Well, well Syracuse has, at least it has Bob Costas. I mean, everybody basically. I, my, Rico. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite baseball player, uh, Jeff Passan is a Syracuse guy. I mean, really? I didn't know that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I love Jeff Passan. I was reading his stuff. Cause I'm a huge baseball fan. I was reading his stuff in like 2006, 2007, because I was working as uh, I mean, I was a young reporter and I just wanted to cover baseball. And I, I wrote to Jeff one time asking him how to do this. And I'm, I'm at Lock Haven, Pennsylvania covering, I mean, just a game or two here. And they're uh, from two minor league teams, like single A. Like single A, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, State College Spikes and the Williamsport Crosscutters. Did you get so, like, to do the Binghamton Yankees ever? The Binghamton Mets. Uh, no. Oh, my bad, yeah. No, because uh, I moved. I worked at the Preston Sun Bolton for like six weeks, and I wasn't even close. I Actually, I shared the same desk with a guy named Scott Lauber, 
who I believe is covering the Red Sox now. I know his name. I've yeah. definitely read like a tweet or something by him before. Yeah, he was working at like the Boston Herald, I think, at one point. Wow. Yeah, and I I think I freelanced for the Herald one time or something like that. But that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was fine. It's it's on my resume somewhere that you know is not going to be used again. Uh, hopefully, but he uh, passing. I, I wrote to him and and he wrote back about yeah. All you need to do is is move to a bigger city, likely try to cover a team and whatever. And then I shot him back a, a trivia question. I regret it now, just because like I didn't understand the tone of my response to this, but. They were like, uh, what are the seven ways a runner can or a hitter uh, can safely reach first base without getting a base hit? And it, it's a tricky can one. I take a at this? Yeah, go for it. Go. Seven ways uh, a batter can safely reach first base without getting a hit. So a drop third strike, a yep. walk, a hit by pitch, an error, um, fielder's choice. Yep. Two more. What the fuck are the other? What are the other two? Catcher's interference. Oh, yes. And then it's tricky and it's kind of stupid, but intentional walk is a different stat. Gay. Which is why it's tricky. <laughs> That's it's like, yeah. So he got all but the intentional walk. And then I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. So I must have just watched the Moops episode. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote to him, so sorry, which probably was taken a different way. Right, and right. I, or he's like, hey, I got actual stuff to do. He like, like I'm making money from Yahoo. You did. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I was like, that's point. It might've been a little better, but I know what yeah. you mean. Yeah. But like, that was, that was my, my only interaction with Jeff Passon. but you know, but yeah, I, I knew cause at the end of all of his stories, he said he went to school at Syracuse and interned at the Kansas City Star. And then he went to Yahoo, but he was, I mean, he's ESPN now. Everybody knows who he is. That's a hell of a jump. Syracuse to Kansas City. Yeah. Right out of college. Yeah. I mean, he, he interned there and then, they hired him as, I believe, I think he covered the Royals or he was a national baseball writer, like right alongside with Posnanski. Okay. Okay. So, hey, I mean, it's him. Yeah. No kidding. But you read his stuff and it's like, oh yeah, that's smarter than me. Like he's good. Yeah. There is a difference. Yeah. Like, like I, I know I couldn't write the way Mark Bowman, the Braves reporter does. Like he just has better grasp of the English language and I like cum jokes too much <laughs> you know mark bowman loves cum jokes i'm sure he does <laughs> you can't print them so how did you become a, a braves fan was that just tbs pretty much yeah and take the long ball um and pretty much just like all my all my yankee fan friends were just like really uppity about the yankees and i didn't want to be that way and the mets are the mets and I <laughs> They're the Mets. Um, and I want them to be better because I do think the NL East is a more fun division when the Mets are competitive. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to be a Braves fan if TBS wasn't showing them every single night when I was like going to bed and on vacation and stuff. They were just like always there to watch. And it was something other than a New York team. And I try and pick outside local teams for my sports. So I became a Mets fan in like 1990, I think something like that. And I was really young. I was like six or seven years old. You just missed their peak. Oh, no kidding. And, <laughs> and I chose the Mets because my thought was the Yankees are an old person's team because mm -hmm. my dad liked them. My grandpa liked them. My grandma liked them. Those are like the three people I knew. And oh, dude, like, everyone I've ever met at a, at a funeral that's like over the age of 65 is a huge Yankees fan. Yeah. And so I, in like 1990, I was like, no, fuck the Yankees. There's a picture of me wearing a Yankees shirt. 
I was like two or three and it's somewhere. I think I might have it in my house, but like I took it away from my parents so they couldn't show people. I was that embarrassed. I would have that photograph burned. (laughs) But like (laughs) I declare myself a Mets fan in like 1990, six years later, the Yankees start this run where they win like five World Series titles in like eight years or whatever it was. Including one over you. Yes. I'm like, in 2000, I could have been happy. Yeah. No, like I have to watch them trounce the Mets in five games and, and all the, I'm in Binghamton and like, we have the Binghamton Mets at the time. It's the Rumble Ponies now, but the Binghamton Mets were there and the Yankees were still the hometown team. I'm like, how does this work? Were the, were the Binghamton Mets getting like good attendance at least? Yeah, they're getting pretty good attendance, but like people cared about the Yankees. They didn't care about the Mets. But of course, that was early 90s too. So like the Mets were a whole like like we have the Red Wings here. Yeah. Um, they were an Orioles farm team for the longest time. And we had a bunch of Orioles fans because of that. Cal yeah, Ripken. And then we were the twins when I was in like fifth grade through a couple seasons ago. And now and then everyone in watch, not everyone, but a lot of people in Rochester started wearing twin stuff. Because Justin Morneau, Joe Maurer, all these guys that came up. And now they're Nats fans, which I oh, uh, 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 I can't. I, I work for them and I love the job, but I can't support that. <laughs> I think I worked in uh, Annapolis for like six years. So I'm right. It was not a great time because the Orioles at that time were awful and the Nationals Ooh. were awful. And both broadcasting, actually, the Orioles broadcasting was pretty good. But the Nationals broadcast team is the worst. Didn't they? Yeah, Gary Thorne was there, and he was fantastic. He actually, uh, at the end of the last Mets season, Gary Thorne was like a free agent, and the Mets broadcast team picked him up. So when Gary Cohen wasn't doing the games, Gary Thorne would would sub in. Really? (laughs) I was like, how does this broadcast team get better? I had, no, because I love the Mets broadcast. Yeah. Like they are the most like down the middle, I think broadcast and they will criticize both teams equally. And yeah. I think that's how it should be. Like the Braves are definitely a little fanboyish, um, which bothers me. They but always have been broadcast. I wouldn't change a thing about the Mets broadcast. In fact, that's part of the fun about like a losing Mets season is watching Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling and Gary Cohen, just like throwing the top, like, Hey, <laughs> gradually more disenfranchised with what they're watching week they- after week. Yeah, they have like this uh, just shoebox, basically, of all these older baseball cards. And they go through them and tell stories about what player. Like, oh, I don't remember this guy. Or, or this guy, you know, he had a great average. I, I know his stats. And it's just like, it's just really fun. Because you don't give a fuck about a 9-2 to two game after a while. No, you don't. And even if you're on the winning side, like, I love listening to, I have the MLB app, but I love listening to the radio broadcast more than I do watching the game. It yeah. just seems more immersive because, like, you watch the games on TV, they go like 60 seconds without saying something sometimes. The radio, they're always describing stuff. So, like, I don't know. I just listened to that and it gets me sucked in more. I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> I, I, growing up, like, I, I can, I can never get Skip Carey's voice out of my head. Ooh, yeah. With Chipper Jones and Greg McMichael and Mark Wollers, like, you say all these names, you're like, oh my God, that's, that's like the soundtrack of my childhood because the Mets and the Braves played so often and like TBS was there. So you'd come home and, and maybe they're playing an afternoon game. And so they're on at one Oh five or yes, that was know. the best. You get off the bus from school and I get to flip on the Braves game, you know? Yeah. And I don't care who's playing. I'll watch a baseball game, you know, especially back then because yeah. you know, it was, 
And I love Save by the Bell, but if you got you give me Save by the Bell reruns or a baseball game, I'm probably going with a baseball game. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, what would you watch over <laughs> baseball now? Like, is there one show you would watch reruns of over baseball? I don't know. I understand not wanting to watch Save by the Bell, especially <laughs> if you've already seen it. <laughs> yeah, I have it memorized. It's like tattooed yeah. in my brain. You know, uh, I don't know. Reruns. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess like the streaming, I'm like, well, I'm deep into Breaking Bad or something like that. I guess I'd watch that, but I can record all the games. So it doesn't really matter. Like that's true. And they're all like, available the next day. And yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, eh, it doesn't really, I watched every single Mets game. I think I'm, I, I like my DVR didn't record like one or two, but like, you know, I, I always watch the Mets games and then I'll, I'll watch like uh, the highlights and, you know, I play fantasy baseball. So I'm up to date on everything. When the off season comes along, I shut everything off though. So really? yeah, I just, I mean, I'll see the big news or whatever, but like when it's time to draft a fantasy team, I'm like, Oh, who's Robinson Cano? Oh, he's suspended. Jones fired. What? <laughs> yeah. It was like, Oh, well, nine years ago. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that Kyle Seeger retired. And yeah. And I'm like one, why? And I didn't even read the story, but I'm like, okay. But like if, if he retired in like late September, I would read the story. Okay. See, that's interesting because I feel like the hot stove, well, now that there's a lockout going on, there's not really any moves being made, but the hot stove for me is really fun, especially when your team is rebuilding like the Braves were when I was first starting stand-up, honestly. Yeah. Like it was just fun to see the moves coming in and being able to speculate on the prospects coming back. And I don't know. I like all that shit. But now they're good. Like, they're really good. Oh, I and- know. You know, like to to do what they do without one of the best players in baseball in Acuna. It's like, why? How? And, and Soroka, man. Imagine what they can do next year. I, I could not be more excited about my baseball team. See, the, the Mets needed to get Max Scherzer just to compete. No. <laughs> 39,000 years old and the Braves torched him in the playoffs. You don't need that dude. Well, I'm happy to have him. I know. <laughs> I'm sure he will be like. The games you're not playing the Braves, he's going to be really effective, but he is going to start to age out eventually. Yeah, and the Mets have him. Uh, the best the best thing I, I think I saw last year was the Mets missed out on Trevor Bauer and like LA gave him like a $40 million contract a year and yeah. they had to eat it. And I was like, I would Good. say talent wise you did, but in terms of people that don't beat women's unconscious assholes, I think you came out on the better <laughs> end of that deal. <laughs> I'm okay. I think, I think the Mets won. Yeah, right. dude, it's really funny. I was so I got uh, I got the show 22 on my PS5. So I got to like the second season of my franchise mode and I got the notification that Trevor Bauer has been called up to the, the, the Dodgers trip to the Dodgers MLB team. And I was just like, oh, so he's still in the game. You just stashed him in triple A for the season <laughs> and he's still like a 96. They, there's like no penalty. He's probably stronger now because of the asshole punching. <laughs> So not to go completely back to comedy, but like that, <laughs> that dark sense of humor. I mean, is that something you developed like over time in standup or was that just in you? I think it just kind of came out of me. Um, I was always very like proper and sheltered growing up. And then I don't really know when it happened. It's just, I just started being, well, no, like when I was with my friends, I was always like, I had a fucked up sense of humor. Cause like my friends and I can go back and forth with it, but I was, I never really thought about putting it towards anything productive you know i right. just kind of thought like this is fun to just fuck around with my friends and say wild shit you know so i don't know i guess it's always been there like of my like of my my oldest friend group since like preschool i've known these two kids alex and simon and i've always been like the more outlandish sense of humor of the three of them so like 
I guess it's always been in me. I just didn't really know how to have an outlet for it until I started doing this. Were they surprised at all that you started doing comedy? For sure. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Especially because I'm like, I'm very introverted and like, I, I can be the funny guy if I'm talking with a couple dudes, but if I'm in like a huge party or something, I'm never going to be the center of attention, you know? So yeah, most of my, like, I would say all of my friends, except the ones that I had spoken to about it with previously before trying, they were all pretty surprised that I had had the balls to do it. Yeah, man. Did they come out like when you when you got back to Rochester? I mean, I don't think they're still around, but like, uh, did they come out and support you and, and just see what you're doing? And dude, for sure. Like they even came out to like my first open mics after like I had friends there at the first night I did it. I had friends at the second night when I ate shit. Yeah. Um, and they all, they'll always remember that. And so will I. But like, that's part of comedy. And I, I didn't know that at the time. I thought it was just like you do five new minutes every time and it's always going to be funny. And then you oh. just have an hour after 10 times. Yep. Me too. <laughs> yeah. This Jude Friedlander character, he just came out of nowhere. He just has five minutes on Letterman. Cause that's what he's been doing for a week. I remember when I was doing uh man, I, I was only doing stand up for maybe a month or two. And it was a Maddie B's and the owner was a comedian as well. He goes, he goes, you know, you should, you should put together a show. And I'm like, all right. Wow. I, I was like, oh, wow, that, that's great. Like, he, he likes me enough to do that. And then uh, I thought how you do a show is like uh, you book yourself as a headliner and then you, you know, put people around you. I think a lot of people in Rochester think that's how you book shows, too. <laughs> well, they're for sure <laughs> all together. <laughs> so, Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so, no, so I I did that. But what I what I did was like I was going to headline and I, I don't know how much time I, I planned on doing, but I was saving the good stories for the show, not running them out into open mics, like not working right. the material out. I was like, no, right. I can't, I can't spoil this one. I've got to hold it. I have, I, maybe it's deleted now and I, I'm sure it is, but I had like the first hour of the show recorded and most of my set didn't record. And I am so thankful that it didn't. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> much like you're doing like your first, you know, news story or your first stand up set at college or something like that, or the, you know, the, the show, it's like, you're so much better now. Hopefully you're so much better now that anything you see in the past, you're just like, Oh my God, how did I do that? Why did I think it was funny? There's no punchline there. Nobody laughed. Why did I think they laughed? Like, yeah, I, yeah. I can't go and watch that and be reminded of how God awful I was, but the problem was everybody in my family, like, and their friends came to see that show. Haven't been back. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasted all the support on one show. Dude. Oh, that sucks so bad. <laughs> yeah. That ha- I see that happen to like so many comics though. Like I, like it has even happened with me. Like people you invite early on cause they're excited that you're doing it. And then they yeah. find out that you suck cause you're just starting. <laughs> and you yep. shouldn't bring those people to the shows yet. But those people are always the ones that are going to beat you in the Rochester contest. <laughs> and it's not because they're funnier than you, I promise. It's just because they're going to have a newer set of friends that is excited about their hack friend starting this, you know? One of the most defeated moments of my life right now, my stand-up life, just came at the Rochester contest in uh, June, I think. Yeah. And, man, I, I thought I had a really good set. And I, I fucked up one joke, thought I had a really good set. And the person... At the end, she went last and uh, she said, make some noise if you're here to see me. I've never heard a louder round of applause. Oh, oh. And I was like, well, I didn't win. And then I didn't place either. And I'm like, so yeah. like, third place and second place were announced. I'm like, well, if 
fuck me. And I was like, all right. And it just, and I just, every time I do that contest, anytime I do any contest, I'm like reminded, oh, you're not from here. Just have fun with it. Yes. Try to do well. But my competitive brain will say, no, I want to win. And it's like, well, good luck. I totally get it, man. I've done the, I did the helium contest like twice in the past. Um, I don't think I'll do it again just because like, it's not a town thing. I got no shot. Like, even if I have the set of my life, I'm probably not going to get more votes than someone who's from there, which is right. understandable. And I don't like blame the club. It's just how those shows are. You know, did you get a video out of your uh, Rochester set at least? No, I didn't want one because I fucked up a joke at the end. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to use it anyway. Okay. Okay. Cause it's a, it's a, I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know if you've seen me do this set probably. Uh, but it's, it's where I have a, like I, I name my penis or whatever. And it, it, I, I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. The run at the end is like, yeah, I, I was really obsessed with Save by the bell. So I named my Dick screech and I fucked up that line. I'm like, I never screwed it up ever. And first time there. And it was like the, I was closing with it. And it usually gets a really good pop. And that night, everything I said got a really great response. And I was like, just, I'm like, oh, I got this. It's, it's yep. easy. I should win. Adrenaline's rising with every punchline that hits. Yep. And then I fucked up that one. And then I'm like, ah. And then I'm like, ah, you guys didn't see that. So I'm like, that. and I, I like played off okay. And then I screwed up again. I'm like, fuck it. So I yeah. walked back and I'm like, well, I knew I didn't win. Like for sure. I wouldn't have voted me for win to win. And so- um, yeah, I wasn't surprised, but yeah, uh, I, I was asked if I wanted, I think Vinny asked me if I wanted to tape. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. If I didn't screw that up, I would definitely have wanted one. Yeah. Well, you could always have just cut before that and said that your closer was before the one you fucked up. Oh, well, I'm not smart. So I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you, I don't you, know, man. You have all these fucking rooms. I would beg to differ. You're really fucking good at this shit. Nah, I just, it's a ruse. I just, I always say like, uh, I, I book people who make me look good. So that helps. Well, yeah, it helps, but you still have to have the wherewithal to like know how to reach out and like pitch yourself to these rooms. It's getting to the point where people are coming to me now, so it's a little easier. But yeah, it's it, when we yeah. when we reopened in like April or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, it was like okay because I lost fourteen rooms and at least they were all shut down. So uh, some of them went out of business. And I'm like, okay, how do I rebuild this? Because like the the goal is not to get a real job anymore. So I'm like, well, pressure's on. So it was tough for a little while. And then what was frustrating was like a lot of people weren't booking shows. So like a lot of people were funneled down to me. It was like, hey, do you have anything? And then I'm like, yeah, but like, because you were one of them where I had you booked a Barrett Acorn when everything shut down. I'm like, well, I've got to, you know, for me, I have to make sure those people who had shows canceled get their shows back. Like I wanted to yeah. pay everybody. Oh, that, and, yeah, that's totally understandable. Yeah, but then at a certain point, I was like, well, I've had enough shows to where now I have to actually respond to people who want to be booked. And I can't not lie to them, but like push them off for a little bit, like give, me, give myself yeah. a little breathing room. But yeah, now hopefully, uh, like I, I just got a new one today and I was like, oh, okay. So that one came to me. So hopefully it keeps going that way. But yeah, I, it's perseverance, I guess. But I, you know, but it's, it's also booking good talent. And like, to, how many to, rooms are you up to now? Uh, 19, but they're not all active. I was so anxious just trying to co-run a show in one room. <laughs> um, and I don't know how you manage 19, man. So uh, I always say it's a steady mix of OCD and ADD. So I, I have to have everything organized 
but I also don't, I can't focus on one thing either. So I've, I've been able to manage both. They're minor afflictions, I'm sure, but like I've, I've been able to manage both of them and just, I do everything by the week. So I have a schedule for every week, but that's the way I book things. Like I like to get monthly rooms. So, you know, it looks like a lot of work and it is, but it's compartmentalized enough. So how many things are you like putting on per week? Would you say? I probably, if you don't count the open mics, I would say like two and a half shows a week is my average okay. um, that I'm booking. So it, there are some weeks where I have four, but a lot of weeks are two. Even two a week is a lot. Yeah. In my opinion. No, it, it definitely is. But I mean, it's probably like everything. Like if you drink a lot, like two beers a day doesn't sound like a, a big thing to you, but to everybody else who doesn't drink a lot, two beers sounds like a, a problem. So Are you saying I'm drinking right now. That's, that's well, you're drinking a Genesee. <laughs> yeah. Is it West? Like a, not West Jenny, but it's a Jenny light or something like that. Uh, it's the 8%er dude. I don't fuck oh, around. Oh, there you go. You don't fuck around. <laughs> no, I, I, I had a buddy who, uh, he had me try, or my brother-in-law did too. They had me try Jenny cream ale. And I was, oh, like, yeah. I was like, that beer will get me to stop drinking. You don't like it? No, I hate it. Well, I'm it's, not saying it's a good quality beer. It's just an easy beer to drink at the end of the night when you're already drunk. <laughs> did you ever hear of Golden Anniversary? Yes. They don't make that anymore. I think it's out of Rochester. It might be out of Jenny. I, no, I think I think they may have actually just made another batch. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if it's golden anniversary, but there is like a golden honey lager ish type box I've been seeing because they, they do like seasonal brews. The, they had like Oktoberfest thing a couple months back and that was shit. Golden anniversary was a joke beer that my college buddies and I gave to people because like it was so bad. We couldn't drink it where like you would you'd buy a case for, I don't know, $10 or $15. Mm-hmm. And we the last time I saw it. We went to a bachelor party in New Jersey. It was like Atlantic City. And we had Golden Anniversary there. People got drunk on it. I don't know if I... I got there a day late. So I I don't think I had any. But when we were coming out, one of us... Like, we're at the car. And one of us like, oh, my God. I I forgot the the case of beer upstairs. And we're all just like, ah, fuck it. Like, we absolutely could have gone back and got that beer. We're like, nah. Nah. We're not... No, it's not worth the steps. You know? We're not doing that. (laughs) And then, then I found out Golden Anniversary was gone, and it was like I wanted to get my brother uh, a shitty beer as like a payback gift for Christmas. And yeah, they're out. You should find like a shirt on eBay. I'm sure there's some kind of merch out there, or like a Saint Pauli girl neon light you could plug in somewhere on his wall. Oh, I mean, that's a good idea. But no, like I, I think uh, if if you're doing consistently a show or two a week, it just becomes natural. Like. Eh. All right, it's two. Like it's and now it's routine. So you add a third, and that's where you're like, okay, well, this is a little bit tougher. Uh, but for me, it was like it almost became a necessity that okay, well, if I don't do it, especially in Binghamton, who will? So you know, and it, I I got lucky. Yeah. I got lucky because I I wasn't good enough to be on all the shows. Some would argue I'm not good enough to be on all my shows, but like I I wasn't good enough to be booked regularly around the town. So I'm like, I found a back door. I'm like, oh, right. if I if I produce them, I could do stand up at them. So then I'm like, oh, okay, I, I got the hang of this. So I think around Binghamton, at least, you know, the foot's off the gas for a, a few other people. Like, oh, I don't have to worry about producing. Mike's mm-hmm. gonna do it. So that I just kind of parlayed into branching out and, you know, booking other funny people to be on it. So it kind of worked out. No, I mean, it's definitely worked out for me. So I appreciate it. <laughs> did you, I mean, did you produce? 
at all? I mean, is that anything you wanted to do? It's something I used to want to do. Okay. Um, but I'm, I found that my only childness means that I have a certain vision that I want to control. And yep. when that vision gets trampled on, I have less interest in uh, working with someone. <laughs> well, I, I noticed that with, with being a middle child where I, I'm the third of four that I will oftentimes take, I think I'm a perfect host. Like that, that, that spot third of four makes for a good host because the attention should never be on the host. I think, I mean, while you're doing stand up, okay. But the show is for the feature. It's for the headliner. So I never hugged you. No, never. I never got hugged. Never. <laughs> so I'm just waiting for one. Uh, but like, like I'm okay with being not in the spotlight. Like I, I will defer. Like that's fine with me. But like, if I were an only child, I don't know if I could do that. Like, no, yeah, like I'm, I, I'm used to it. I do. Well, yeah, there is a certain, there's definitely a big sense of that, that I'm used to being the center of attention. That doesn't mean that I like it though. Like I said, like, I'm not going to be the guy at parties who's like drawing everybody to him. Yeah. But I can do it on stage because like I've prepared this and I know where I'm trying to go with this. It's not just like, a, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just more of an introverted thing, I guess. Like, a, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I lost my my, my, my way there. <laughs> I mean, has, has doing stand-up brought you out of that shell at least? Yes, I, I think it has. Um, it's definitely raised my confidence in the long run. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm absolutely more confident person now than I was 10 years ago. And that I think is directly attributed to stand up and maybe booze, but most. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the worst set you've ever had? Worst show you've ever done? Yeah, dude. Um, Cortland, Paul Kozlowski produced it. Um, <laughs> I was on it. It was a hotel. Um, I was on it with RJ McCarthy and Steve Rogers. And I don't even know that like the space and it wasn't Paul's fault that it was the worst show I ever did. It was the headspace I was in. I just got in second place in the Rochester contest after and like all of my friends and even like the ancillary friends that I wasn't super close with came to the finals and voted me and I still got second place. So I was like in my head, I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just never going to fucking be good enough at this shit. So then I got to this show, like maybe a week after losing the contest and I ate shit in front of this crowd of old hicks. Like, I don't have a better way to describe it, but that's like they were just chilling at a hotel in Cortland, you know? And it was a full room, so I can't even say it was, like, the audience. So I I guess I kind of did just say it was the audience, but it was a full room. They weren't for me, or I wasn't for them. And I just took it really to heart. I remember talking with Steve and RJ afterwards, like, I was going to quit. Like, I was, like, it was, I had taken it so harsh that I was going to just quit comedy that night. And then Steve Rogers, to his credit, like, I'll never forget this. He's like, you can't do that because, like, of the Rochester people, you're the one that we talk about. So like, yeah. you can't. And the fact that that was coming from Steve, of all people, especially to see where what he's accomplished now. Yeah, I, I was absolutely ready to quit. And they specifically Steve kept me in it. But Steve and RJ definitely got to give them all the credit in the world. That's at the St. Charles, Paul, right? Paul too. Yeah, I, it might have been the St. Charles. That sounds very familiar. Yeah. Uh, I've heard about this show. So uh, this specific show I, I did. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure, but I think RJ had a Rocky set as well. Yeah. None of us did like particularly well, but I just took it really to heart that night. Yeah. I've done two shows there and that's, I can see how that's a tough room because that audience is older. So 
here's what I think the problem was. I booked a show one time, well, a few times, but definitely one time in Trumansburg where it was me, Sherelle Kinder, RJ McCarthy, and Justin Jackson. Good lineup. Really good lineup. For sure. But it's old people and they saw two black people and they were like, whoa. <laughs> yes. Yes. But what the problem was, like, we all had all right sets mm-hmm. and like, like uh, I, I did okay. And then RJ did a little better and Sherelle did whatever. I mean, it was okay. I booked that show and I'm like, we're all going to crush. I mean, maybe I won't, but everybody else will. It's going to be fantastic. Lineup. It's a great lineup. But then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There are four single people with no kids talking about single people with no kid problems and, mm-hmm. and the attitude of like, fuck kids or whatever to a bunch of people who are happy. They're living happy lives because of their families. And like, yeah. Oh, so that's probably what happened. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. And I've been in like, uh, you know, Danny Liberto. Yeah. You're, yeah. So he like he used to book me on shows a bunch and like and I love the dude. He's I would never say a bad word about him. But like, yeah, I think he just realizes that I'm not for the people he books. Like he books a lot of VFW halls and stuff like that. And baby Travis isn't going to make those people laugh. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they're going to they're going to like spit out their their wine and horror or something, you know, I book one, I have an Elks Lodge and I'm a member, but like, uh, I'm a member. Uh, my brother-in-law is a member. So I joined as well. And part of the incentive for me to join was so I could do comedy there. So I'm like, oh, okay. okay, yeah. So I'll, I'll pay my $90 a month or $90 a, a year and I'll make, I'll make all that money back. So for sure. it's like, okay. So or at least you get stage time out of it. Right. So I will never figure out an Elks Lodge or a VFW, like, cause I go in there thinking, oh, they're an older crowd. I should do cleaner material. No, no. they nope. don't. They want dirty. And I'm like, okay. But I always psych myself out. I'm like, no, no, I know what they want and never know what they want. It's weird, man. They do want dirty, but they want dirty in the style of the jokes they're used to hearing. Like they want dirty in the style of Benny Goodman or something like that. Yeah. You know, like they don't want dirty in Mark Norman's voice. Like they want an old school, like Rodney Dangerfield telling a dirty joke, that sort of pace to it. And no one now does that. So it's hard to pull off. <laughs> we don't do that because it's been done. Exactly. Yeah. But they, they like, that's what they are used to see. Like when they think of comedy, they think of Rodney Dangerfield or people like that, you know? So that's what they're expecting to see. And then when they see some kid going up there and talking what we talk about, it just, it's not what they paid for, you know? Yeah. Is it tough to do comedy in Rochester for you? Um, what, what do you mean in terms of like the people who come out or? No, just your style. Like you're, I think of you as like, like with Andy Kuhn, like you guys are a little darker than what I typically see come out of Rochester. I don't know if like the material goes over as well there, or if it's better in Buffalo, if it's better in Syracuse, anything like that. Like, is I it think, tough to do comedy there? Um, I don't know if I'd say it's tough. I'd say I, my, my personality probably makes it harder. I'm not as outgoing as I should be. And Andy's much better about that sort of thing. I think Buffalo is the best place hands down to do dark comedy or just comedy in general in anywhere other than New York city. It's the, I've had the most fun in Buffalo, but yeah, Rochester, we definitely, and it goes back to that dude, Woody. I don't want to talk too much about him, but uh, he really just sort of ingrained this culture of like, Nanette type comics where right. like you have to be right instead of being funny. And I'm not saying that's what everybody does, but I, a lot of people still that I see edge towards that way. And I don't get along with that type of comic. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I don't know. Like I don't, 
I don't have an agenda when I do comedy at all. Nor should you. Yeah. The only agenda should be to making the audience laugh. Like that's that's what they're there for. Like they, they're not there to learn from you. And if they were, they would have paid for a TED talk. Like unless your opinion has a funny thing at the end of it, they don't need your hot takes on gun control, you know? And yeah. Zach can lean into it and I give him all the credit in the world. But like I could never do that. Yeah, I watch him do, you know, when Hammond does... Like uh, that that joke about heroin or like like marijuana. People who smoke pot aren't cool. The cool people are heroin. Ends. Right. And it's like like it's an interesting take. I mean, and obviously he ends with a with a joke and he's being facetious about it. But it's like I don't think I could do that joke. Not the length of it. I could do a one liner. Right. For sure. But like, but like to actually dig into it, I'm like I don't think I have the attention span or the confidence I need in my material to do a four minute bit on it. Part of it. Um, now that you bring that up has always been my attention span. Um, I find myself when I watch these specials with like Gary Gullman and he's got like these 15, 20 minute long bits. I find myself not necessarily checking out, but like I don't stick with him the entire way. And then by the time he's gotten to the actual funny part of it, I, he's lost me. Whereas a guy like a teller Norman is much quicker about it, you know? But the, even people like Burr find a middle ground there. Like Burr is very long-winded. Louie's very long-winded, but they still have jokes. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. I'm not trying to shit on Gallman or anyone long form like that. It's just not my favorite thing, I guess. It's a huge talent. And if you could do it, good for you. It absolutely is. And I, I think part of the reason it doesn't connect with me is because I can't do it. Right. You worked with Attell and Norman, right? Yes. Yeah. What was, what was that like? I was so fucking nervous around Attell. So like, I, I didn't even, I, it's kind of just like a, a blur to me. I remember like the Friday show I got there cause it was in Buffalo and I had to drive right after I got out of work. So like I got there, we started the first show and then I don't like eating before my set. So I didn't eat before the late show. And then I didn't eat during the late show either. Cause I was talking to him in the green room and I didn't want to not talk to him. Yeah. Um, and then I was listening to him on stage and then I had to be there to take him off stage. But he was also like bringing me up to like riff with me at the end of all the sets. So like I didn't want to have food in me and be weighed down when he when I was going to be riffing with like my fucking alive hero. You know, that's insane. Yeah. That, like that. And uh, the Sean, the uh, the manager of Helium has video of me on stage with him. And t- to this day, it's like my favorite thing. And he wrote a fucking he submitted something to um I forget what website it was, but that was like the club manager's favorite weekends of 2017. And he specifically, like he said that that weekend was his favorite weekend. And he specifically mentioned me by name in the article too. No kidding. Yeah. It was like the coolest thing that ever happened to me. So like six months, six, seven months before I moved. So I was, I was like riding a real high when I moved. I was going to say like, that had to give you all the confidence in the world to say, you know, I got this. Yeah. And then like a couple weeks after that, I featured for the first time and it was with big J and then Big J shouted me out on the bonfire that next Monday. And I, like my comedy dick could not have been bigger. So I, <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> Holy shit. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't, I, I fucking hate bragging about myself, but that is where I was at at that time. It's the only reason I'm bringing that stuff up. What about Norman? Norman was like a really down to earth hang. Like he was much, like, I was less nervous around. I was still nervous, but I was less nervous around him. Like he, he legitimately asked me and Chris Allen, the feature, um, like, if we had new bits we were working on, if we wanted to workshop anything. And he was pretty consistent about that. But also just like we hung out after all the shows, like we walked around downtown Rochester after the Friday and Saturday shows. And then 
after the late Saturday show, we ended up just drinking beers and watching TV in the fitness room of the hotel they were staying at because the bar was closed. So it was just like a really fucking, as a comedy nerd and a huge fan of his, it was a fucking really cool moment for me. I think I heard him talk about that on Tuesdays of Stories, but I didn't hear your name. Really? I think so. Fuck. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. I think so. It would have been, what, a couple episodes ago? because they It would have been back in October that I worked with him. Okay. So maybe, not, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Because okay. I think I just, I heard it recently. Uh, and I'm off to date on the episodes. But yeah, yeah it, it's, I would love to work with him. And I would be afraid of the green room, honestly, with him. Like, I, I don't think I could keep up with him at all. And not that I think he, he expects that. Sorry. It, yeah, that's the thing. It wasn't necessarily like we weren't all just like shitting on each other. It wasn't just like um, what you see at like when they show those like uh, the seller specials on Comedy Central and they yeah. show the table and everyone shitting on each other. It wasn't like that. Like we were having, uh, I would say, kind of like earnest conversations about comedy. Like he asked us our opinion on the Chappelle special and we all talked about that. And it was just nice to like talk comedy with someone who's so amazing at it and professional. I can't imagine him being a douchebag to anybody. Like I could see him like being awkward and having that yeah. come across as that, but like, he seems like a pretty earnest guy as an anxious person myself. I never took his awkwardness as off-putting. Like I always just took it as like, Oh, he's just like me. He's just not stoned. And that's the difference. <laughs> Are you able to get stoned before shows and, and function? I don't smoke immediately before I go on stage, but I'm, I'm usually some level of high <laughs> would have been nice to know before I started booking you. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, I'm getting- <laughs> <laughs> uh, grandfathered into it, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Do you not support the pot smoking comedians of the world? Cause you're going to be alienating about 90% of us. No way. There was like a, a, a little bit uh, of me thought about monitoring people's drinks, but I'm like, no, like if, if they're, because a, a really easy way to do that is to not book them again. Yeah. Like, I'm like, no, if you're if you're functioning well on stage, I don't care. You make people laugh. Do whatever you want. Like, don't die on the way home. But like, I don't care. Like, yeah. And like, it's the same reason I don't like light people at the end of the shows. It's like, I trust you. Like, you're have fun with it. And like, I think part I think part of the reason people like doing my shows is that it's like, OK, well, you know, we've got four people. Let's fucking have fun for an hour and a half. Yeah. And like, there's no pressure. I mean, there's a little bit, but I'll feel the pressure. Not you guys. I don't care. The only real pressure is like, there's always going to be people there. So you just don't want to do worse than anybody else on the show. Yeah. But that is, that is a good pressure to have. Yeah. Because you want to do better than the person before you. I and mean, that's, that's how, I mean, I think, I think competition is such a good part of comedy because Absolutely. Like, it's, and it's a healthy competition for the most part. Yeah. Like I, I never understood people getting mad if if you do somebody else's show it's like no because if they do that show then theoretically they will be that much better for when they do your show next right because they've experienced a different audience right i'm like every every set should make you a little better so i don't understand the logic of like like just getting mad about that and like just have fun with it just go and like work out your material who cares yeah, that's really what I've tried to get back to, honestly. Like since COVID, comedy's come back and I stopped being so in my head, you know. Um, yeah. I'm really trying to focus on the fun part of it because if if you're not having fun, then no one else is going to have fun. Like right. if you're on stage not having fun, no one's going to go with you. So, no, well, you go back to journalism and it's like I, I was once offered 
uh, I was working part-time in the sports department and I was offered to do a full-time news reporting. And one of the stories I, I did as an audition for that was a 4-H club meeting. And I'm like, no, like I don't, I, I said to them, they were, they were surprised that I didn't want the full-time job. And I'm like, well, if I don't, if I'm not having fun writing what I'm covering, I assume the readers are going to see that and they're going to be bored by what I'm writing. Right. So and then eventually you're not going to get picked up for your next contract or something. Cause no one reads what you write or when you're not getting enough clicks or whatever. Fuck. And yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, no, I'll just hold on and I'll get a sports writing job. And I know I'm good at that. So I'll just do, you know, just wait a little bit, but that's, that's what with comedy too. It's like, if you're, if you're bored of your material, if you hate your material, it's like, well, it's going to come across on stage. So Absolutely. write something you like, write something new, do something. And I don't know, figure out, do crowd work, switch it up, do one-liners, do whatever. Sure Mike, don't do crowd work at a mic. No. I love I, Brown, but he does that. And that bugs the shit out of me. Who does it? I've seen just, well, Justin Brown doesn't do oh, mics. Okay. Yeah. I've seen him do crowd work at mics and it drives me up the fucking wall. And he's really good at crowd work. And I think it's probably because he did it at mics, but you're at a mic, dude, work on material. I, I love the guy, but <laughs> I, I always say it's, it's so hard to work on crowd work because you can't do it at a mic. You know, most of the people. It's yes. Like you're, it's you're, not doing a it, you're doing it. it. It's, it's plants essentially. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm like, no, I like getting better. Like I need to get better at crowd work, but like the only way I do that is at a show. And I'm really? in the, I'm in a good spot because I booked the shows so I can do that. And I still, I'm like, eh, I don't want to do it. Like I want to do it, but I don't. Crowds at your shows, which is a big thing. Yeah. Like I, we, the, the show I helped co-produce, we had like six people there. That's and I don't know how you, I don't know how you market. I just don't. That's that's just tough. And and uh, I the the shows we have like like I've had shows with two and four people, and uh, you just basically okay. Well, for me, I I give the same energy for them, and I'm not like high energy guy anyway. But it's like I I don't like eh, you guys don't matter because they drove there, right? They you never want to see you guys don't matter to a crowd, right? there to see you they matter more than you do basically well and they will if you say that they likely won't come back the next time because mm-hmm. they don't matter if they mm-hmm. don't matter when they're sitting there they're not going to matter when they're not there right exactly so what what's your goal i mean what you have a you have a next step in mind or you're just having fun right now i'm just having fun i i guess when all is said and done i would like to have an album like a vinyl album just like proof of like 45 minutes to an hour of jokes that i know are good and can get passed on. And even when I'm dead, the record will be there. Right. Cause I know I'm never going to be on Netflix. I'm 99% sure about that. And to even to get a, like a YouTube special, you got to have a successful podcast for people to watch it. That's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. Like I, it might happen someday. I'm still pretty young, but you know, um, I think a record is the most realistic goal I should try for. Well, it's something you can do on your own too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can record as long as the audio is good enough. I can do that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's for me like that. That's a great goal, too. And it's like I envy people like you who are like putting stuff together. And it's I wouldn't say everything you have is bulletproof, but like it's getting there. And like like you've only got what, 20 more minutes to go? Yeah, thereabouts. Um, I would 25 to be sure. Um, Like I know I can do 20. That's really good. It might not all. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can do 20. That is like really, really good. Maybe 25, depending on the crowd. But yeah, I just need to tighten some stuff up. I got to get better about going back to mics. But mics suck. And they do. They do. 
And uh, if, like I said before, if I didn't host these mics, I don't know how regular I would go. Like, you know, I, how regularly and, and uh, yeah, that's, that's what I needed for me. I needed, I needed the accountability. So I don't, I would never recommend anybody uh, who's done comedy for 10 years, host an open mic. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's all no. the responsibility you shouldn't have. <laughs> no, dude. Uh, after I lost Boulder, I'll never host an open mic again. That was, that was enough for me. Like I, that was, I had fun hosting that room, but just the stresses that come with it, I would never want to open myself up to that again. So, well, just with Rochester and all the, the COVID stuff, it's, that's just frustrating. In Endicott, we take that seriously, but like, I know Kelly's isn't going anywhere. Uh, yeah. They're not shutting down for two weeks or four weeks, or they're not going to make me do every other Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah Benson's doing Boulder. And it's like, it seems like every day, any mic in Rochester is like, it fluctuates. It's like, well, well we, we're not doing yeah. this this week. One of the shows I was co-producing got canceled like hours before it was supposed to happen because one of their bartenders tested positive. So it's like everything's in flux now. And that's understandable to a certain extent. But yeah, it sucks because we just want stage time. Right. Well, I guess I'll just have to uh, get more venues and book more people. Yeah. I mean, the more work you do, the more fun I'll have. So. <laughs> and that's that's all I'm doing it for. You know, I just want to make sure RJ Prepara has fun. Well, I appreciate that. My parents would be very happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I appreciate this, man. I had a ton of fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. I did too. This was a blast. Yeah. How can people follow along with, I know you're, you're not on Facebook anymore, but what's social no, media? Yeah, I got rid of Facebook. I stopped tweeting because, um, yeah, um, I'm pretty much on Instagram. That's the one I use most. Um, I'm not super great about it, but it's at RJ Purpura, P-U-R-P-U-R-A on Instagram. And my friend also made me a standup account. So if you just look up RJ standup on Instagram, uh, you'll also see just like, I don't want to say exclusive content that you wouldn't see on my main page, but it's like a less sexual version of that. <laughs> Do you have to pay this guy to work for you or no? No, it's just the lady I met on Tumblr back in college and we've stayed close since. So unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've had a groupie for 10 years. Never met in person. Yeah. But it's been cool. That might be the best relationship. Yeah, I think it is. It's pretty low maintenance. <laughs> well, dude, again, man, thank you so much for doing this. And yeah, man, I'll, I'll, man. I'm, I'm sure I'll talk to you soon at the show. Yeah, definitely. Let's do it soon. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Wings off I'm peeling back my sunburned skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I, I hope they let me in.